Please remain standing in honor of God's Word. We're continuing on in the book of Acts, and this morning we'll look at Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Acts chapter 8, 26 through 40. Last week we saw Philip with the Samaritans. Uh, Now he's going to be led in a different direction. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And as we read in Isaiah 55, Your Word is like rain and snow that comes down from heaven and is not returned to it until it waters the earth, making it bud and flourish so that it gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So is Your Word that goes out from Your mouth. You have promised that it will not return void but will accomplish all that You desire. Father, may that be true this morning. May Your Word water our souls. May it bear much fruit. 20, 30, 60, even a hundredfold if Your blessing would accompany Your Word. And we ask that it would accompany Your Word. So Father, this morning, may You honor Your Word. And we ask this for Christ's sake, who is the Word incarnate. Amen. May be seated. I'd like to begin this morning with a question. And here's the question I'd like to ask you. How would you go through your day tomorrow, from the moment you got up till the time you went to bed, if you believe that every interaction, every encounter, even every interruption 
was intentionally orchestrated by God for a specific purpose. Would that make a difference in how you went about your day? Well, if you did believe that, you would live like a Christian instead of a deist. Some of you kids might be wondering, what is a deist? A deist is a person who believes in God, but they don't believe that God is actively involved in His creation. Uh, the deist is like the clockmaker. He made the clock and he wound up the clock and then he stepped back and he allowed the clock to run all by itself, but he wasn't involved. That's how a deist views creation. God created the world and He set everything in place and then He kind of stepped back and He just allows everything to take place without being actively involved. That is not the view of Christianity. It has never been the view of Christianity. Christians believe that God is a sovereign God. And what does that mean at the practical level where we live every day? To say that God is sovereign is to say that God is in control of everything that takes place. In other words, we could say it means that God is involved in every little detail of your life. Think of how the Scriptures talk about God's involvement with His creation. Uh, from one perspective, we could say, yes, God has set the water cycles in motion as well as the constellations in their seasons, but the writers of Scripture prepare, or excuse me, prefer to say that God causes His Son to rise, that He sends the rain as well as the lightning and the wind. And in the Bible, women don't just get pregnant. Rather, the Lord opens and closes the womb. And when it talks about the birds, they don't just find food. Rather, we read that the Lord Himself feeds them. And by the way, not one of those birds, not one of those sparrows will fall to the ground apart from God's say-so because He's even involved with the little birds and the little worms and the little insects that they eat. If you were to go to Las Vegas, you would hear incessant talk about the odds. But what do, what do we read about in the Proverbs? God is even in control of the rolling of the dice. That's a paraphrase. So even the dice that are rolled in Vegas is not an accident. God is in control of that. And this is what James tells us. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. He says, no, no. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Only if it's God's will, only if it's a part of His plan and His purpose will it take place. Because if it's not a part of His plan and His purpose, it will not take place. Because God is involved in our business schedule as well. In other words, God is involved in every little detail of creation, every detail of our lives. Now, I think from one perspective, we could say that the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is like a roller coaster. Scary and thrilling at the same time. Uh, if we're honest, this is a hard doctrine. And it can even be a scary doctrine. Because when we talk about God being sovereign, this includes God being sovereign over hurricanes, tornadoes, 
armies going to war, genocide, cancer. And when we look at it from that perspective, it's, it's seen as scary. But it's also exciting. Because this means that behind all these quote-unquote tragedies, God has a plan. God has a purpose. And this is why as Christians, we love Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, God is working for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. It was interesting, in Sunday school last week, we were talking about the quote-unquote problem of evil. If God is all-powerful and all-good, how can there be evil in the world? And one of the evil things in the world that was brought up was divorce. And what a tragedy that was. And I didn't think about it immediately, but I thought about it short after, after Sunday school. I thought, hmm, yes, God hates divorce, and yet divorce brings tragedy. Yes, that's true. But I thought of my mother who went through a divorce. And because of that divorce, because of that tragedy in her life, she put her faith in Jesus Christ and is now going to spend an eternity with God. So yes, evil's bad. Tragedy. But God turned that around for her everlasting salvation. So, so we have to be a little careful of how we judge these tragedies. Because we don't always see the final product. Now, I want you to know, and I honestly would scream this from the mountaintops. I mean it. Your life is not an accident. It is not an accident. It is designed by Almighty God. Every single aspect of your life has a purpose. And let me give you just a few Scripture passages to support this. Acts 17. In verse 26, I'm not going to give you all the context. I just want you to see the principle here. Paul says, And he made from one man, and that one man, of course, is, kids, Adam, thank you. He made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Let me make it real simple. You kids are alive here today in America because God planned that for you. He planned that you're going to be Americans and you're going to live right here at this time. You're not just here by accident. God didn't, again, He didn't just wind up the clock of creation and let things take place. Let people reproduce it. And now, here you are thousands of years later. No, you are here by the determined will of God. It's not an accident that you live where you live. Psalm 139. Another great passage of Scripture that says a lot more than we think. Psalm 139, 15 and 16. David says, looking back to when he was formed in his mother's womb, he said, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the womb. And by the way, you were woven together by God. 
nature wasn't just taking its course. God was weaving you together, determining the outcome as well. When Moses, you might recall, was complaining about his stammering lips, God said, who makes man's mouth? God said, I do. Who makes man dumb or mute? Is it not I, the Lord? God knit us together. He determines our outcome. And even quote-unquote handicaps are a result of God's work. And He has a plan and He has a purpose for handicaps too. Namely, His glory and our joy. But David continues on. And he says in verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Or excuse me, I need to back up to 16. Your eye saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them. What? The days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. Now, some people look at that passage and they say, God determined the number of days that our lives would be. Before we were ever born, God said, this person's going to live to be 88. This person's going to be live 65. This person's going to live to be 15. God determined it. Yes, that's included in this, but so much more is included. This is what Ray Ortland Jr., my Old Testament professor from Trinity, says about this passage of Scripture. He says, God is affirming that David wrote the script of his life in the great book of God's intentions before the actual events begin to unfold. Indeed, before David was ever born. And mixing his metaphors, David also says that the days of his life were formed or shaped. You see it? The days were formed. They were shaped by God. Every single one of his days. Suggesting the action of a potter shaping clay. He means that his life, considered not only as a whole, but also right down to his daily experience was determined. And then he says, what other word fits ahead of time? And why does David make this point? Because it assures him that he is not here in this present danger by chance. He is living out God's will and plan for his life. And this faith gives David godly poise in the face of danger. Not an accident what David's going through. It was God's intention all along. God planned it before he was even born. There is a purpose to it. And then just one more passage of scripture that I'd like you to consider. Romans, or excuse me, Ephesians two, eight and nine. Very common passages that talk about our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So this is a great passage that says we're saved by grace through faith alone, not as a consequence of any works that we had done. We couldn't do enough works to earn our salvation. It's by grace alone. But verse 10 is a good verse because while we're saved by grace alone, verse 10 tells us that we're saved unto good works. Not by good works, but unto Good works. Verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, let me just stop there. We are created in Christ Jesus. That's talking about our salvation. A new creation. We're created in Christ Jesus for the very purpose of good works. But then notice what Paul says, which God prepared 
beforehand that we should walk in them. So tomorrow, as you go throughout your day, walk throughout your day knowing that God has prepared beforehand good works that you should walk in them. So tomorrow, God has good works for each and every one of us. And therefore, we should open our eyes and we, we should be on the lookout for these good works. I wonder what God has for me today. So we need to go throughout our day knowing that it's designed by God. It has a plan and a purpose. And He has good works for us. So let's do those good works that He has for us. Again, we're not here by accident. Our lives are designed. They have purpose, intentionality. Now, going back to Acts 8, one of the good works which God has prepared in advance for Philip is an encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch who is traveling back to Ethiopia from Jerusalem where he went to worship. And God has planned that Philip will share the Gospel with this Ethiopian eunuch and have the privilege of watching him come to faith in Jesus Christ and then baptizing him as they come across water. And I want you to notice that the very first verse of this episode makes it clear that this is not a chance encounter. This is a divine appointment. An appointment set up by God Himself. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. So an angel tells Philip, I want you to go 60 miles down the road and I want you to stand out there in the middle of the desert (laughs) until you receive further instructions and Philip obeys. Now, kids, your attention, please. I have a question for you. Where did this angel come from? Heaven. Heaven. Thank you. This angel came from heaven. And a follow-up question. Someone else can answer this. Who sent the angel? God sent the angel. Very good. This angel came from heaven and it came from God. God told this angel, I want you to go from my throne I want you to go down and I want you to tell Philip that he needs to go down the road leading to Gaza. Now, why is God sending an angel to do that? It's His plan. God has set His affection on an Ethiopian eunuch. God has said that Ethiopian eunuch is mine. And Philip is going to reach him. But right now, they're 60 miles apart. So i got to get Philip into the desert so that they can come together. And in order for that to happen, if I want to, I can send an angel. And by the way, I do want to send an angel just for fun. And he sends an angel so that Philip can get down 60 miles down the road to meet this Ethiopian eunuch. 27. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasurers. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning, seated on the chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So he was a eunuch, therefore he wouldn't be a sexual threat to the queen. Uh, The queen exercised power because in this culture, uh, exercising power was beneath the dignity of the king. Um, I guess he just 
put his feet up and his, the queen, she would take care of all the hard work in the kingdom. She would run the place and I guess he would just sit back and relax. Uh, he is a worshiper. That's, that's interesting. He came to Jerusalem to worship. Either he was born a Jew or he was a convert to Judaism. But, other, but anyhow, we don't know exactly why. Perhaps it was one of the, the annual feasts and he went to Jerusalem to worship or he just went to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. We're not really told. But this is actual, actually amazing. We might overlook this. But he has his own copy of the Scriptures. Now, we just take that for granted. Uh, I see many of you with Bibles. We just take it for granted. Uh, we have many Bibles. Having your own copy of the Scriptures in the first century was not common. This is very unusual that he has a scroll of Isaiah the prophets or maybe more of the Old Testament Scriptures. And we need to appreciate the fact that we have our Bibles. And this is where church history can be so helpful. Think of John Wycliffe. He was martyred December 31st, 1384 because he dared, he dared to translate the Bible into English. And then a little while later, John Huss follows in his footsteps and he too has the audacity to translate the Bible into the common language of the people so that ordinary peasants could open up the Bible for themselves and read God's Word for themselves. This was considered heretical and he too was martyred. This is what one writer said about the end of his life. Several attempts were made to get John Huss to recant. He refused them all. His final sentence came on July 6, 1415. At the sentencing, he was placed on a high stool in the middle of the church and sentenced to death. The chronicler of the events noted that they placed a hood over his head with pictures of the devil and the word Heresiarch, a leader of heretics, then committed his soul to the devil. Huss responded, and I commit myself to the most gracious Lord Jesus. In a letter written the night before his sentencing, Huss prayed that if his death would contribute anything to God's glory, then he might be able to meet it without fear. Hands bound behind his back, Huss was chained to the stake. Wood and hay were piled up to his chin. Rosin was sprinkled on it. He was given one last chance to recant and be set free. Bravely, he refused and said, I shall die with joy today in the face of the gospel which I had preached. As they lit the flames around him, he sang out twice, Christ, thou Son of the living God, have mercy upon me. He died singing and praying and following in the footsteps of John Huss came Martin Luther and Martin Luther also had the audacity to translate the Bible into the language of the people German and then being inspired by Martin Luther William Tyndale comes along and he translates the Bible 
into English, which led to the Geneva Bible. And then that resulted in the King James Version, which most people consider mainly the work of William Tyndale. And we open our Scriptures today and we need to realize that for centuries men gave their lives so that average people like us could open up the Scriptures and read it. This this is an astounding statement that says he was reading the Scriptures. We take it for granted, but let us not take it for granted. It is a tremendous privilege. Now, continuing on, verse 29, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join the chariots. Now it's not an angel. Now it's a spirit. So, Philip, it seems, is generally in the right vicinity, but he's not close enough. He's got to go towards that chariot. So, God wants to get Philip by that chariot. So, the Spirit Himself tells Philip to go and join the chariot. So, Philip ran to him. I, I like that. I think that's just fun little... De- he ran. I don't know how fast the chariot was going, but in order to catch up to the chariot, he had to run. Which he was, he was more than happy to do because the Spirit told him to join the chariot. So, he runs, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophets. So obviously he was reading out loud, which is how people read in this day. And then Philip had a question for him. Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before his shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? What a great question, huh? Who is he talking about? I don't understand. Can you explain it to me? And Philip, beginning with that very passage of Scripture, explains to him the good news about Jesus Christ. And I don't know all that Philip told him, but I'm sure he said, well, let's, let's back up a little bit in Isaiah 53 and go through the whole passage. Well, let's read it. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Philip explained to the Ethiopian eunuch about the substitutionary penal atonement of Christ. Understand that, Mia? Substitutionary penal atonement of Christ. She's just smiling. Sure, yeah. <laughs> In other words, penal just means punished. He was punished. He was afflicted. He was wounded. But he was wounded for us. That's where substitution comes in. Any of you kids ever had a substitute teacher? 
Nicholas, I know you have. You ever had a substitute teacher? That's a teacher who takes the place of another teacher, right? Jesus was a substitute for whom, Nicholas? Can I put you on the spot? Who should have been punished? (laughs) Ah, thank you. See, he knows. Mom's all worried. He got it. He he got it. That was that was beautiful. He was our substitute. He took our place, was punished in our place so that we could be forgiven. So that our sins could be atoned for it. So that our sins could be forgiven. And he explained how Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, the Son of God, was the fulfillment of that. And most likely, he said, and those who believe the good news of this message must be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, Philip explains to him the good news of the Gospel. And then in verse 36 we read, And as they were going along the road, he came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And then the ESV has this in a footnote, but the King James Version has 37 right in the text. And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Uh, Early Christian baptismal formula. um, All you have to have is a rudimentary understanding of theology. And that rudimentary understanding is simply that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is the Savior, and that He is the Son of God. And if you believe that with all your heart, if you believe that sincerely, then you can be baptized. And when they came, or excuse me, 38, and He commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and He baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. Uh, So he's baptized. The Spirit of the Lord, it's interesting, enters into the picture once again and carries Philip away. How did he do that? Did he do it like a a jet plane? That's how some see it. And he carried Philip away and immediately transported him from one area to another. Instantaneously, he's gone. Possibility, probably not. Probably just means he carried him away, leading him somehow to another place. Doesn't necessarily have to mean a miracle. We're not really told that it was a miracle. We're just told that Spirit led him away. But it is interesting that it begins by talking about an angel. In the middle of the passage, it talks about the Spirit leading him. And it ends talking about the Spirit leading him to another place. All reminding us that none of this ministry of Philip is an accident. He is led by the Spirit of God, carrying out God's plan and God's purpose. And then I also like the fact that while it ends with Philip being taken away, and the eunuch seeing him no more, he went on his way rejoicing. His joy wasn't taken away. He went on his way rejoicing and no doubt went back to Ethiopia rejoicing, sharing with the queen his new joy in Jesus Christ and probably became the first missionary to the Ethiopians. So a tremendous passage. And then verse 40 begins with... uh, Philip ministering in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns 
until he came to Caesarea, which now he probably makes his hometown because when we see Philip again, we'll only see him one other time briefly, um, that is where he is living. But he's continuing to preach. But it's very clear. It's not an accident where he's going. He is led by God. Now, what can we take away from this passage? Three simple points. First of all, let's all be open to God's leadings. Let's just be open to the leading of God. And, and God can lead in a hundred ways. Um, in the passage last week, we saw that there was persecution in Jerusalem and that led people to go out into Jerusalem and Samaria. And God used that. God used persecution. He just used common, ordinary circumstances to lead His people in another direction so that divine appointments could take place. God could do anything. He could give us a flat tire on the road so that someone else might stop and come our way and we could have an opportunity to talk. God can use whatever He wants. Again, God can use a hundred things. Interruptions. Difficulties. Things that make us groan might actually be a part of God's plan. Let me correct that. They are a part of God's plan. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know everything that God has in mind. And I'm not saying every interruption is something that you have to take an hour out of your schedule for. That's not necessarily what God has. It might be. Not necessarily. But I am saying God has a plan. God has a purpose. We're not just going through life experiencing accidents. God is at work. Maybe not supernaturally leading us through angels and voices from the Spirit, but He is leading us and He can do this in countless ways. And my challenge is just to be open and be aware of the fact that God wants to use you to bring about His purposes. What else can we take away from this? The power of Scripture. The power of Scripture. Uh, The early church father, Chrysostom, compared the conversion of this Ethiopian eunuch with that of Saul of Tarsus. And Lord willing, next week we're going to look at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Now, Saul, on the road to Damascus, persecuting Christians, and as we'll see next week in more detail, Jesus Christ appears to him, literally knocks him off his high horse, and we see the instantaneous conversion of Saul just like that because Jesus Christ appears to him in all his glory and blinds him. This passage, we look at the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip explains the Scriptures to him and it seems that he is converted immediately. Now, notice this parallel. Both men are converted just like this. This Ethiopian eunuch was converted as though Jesus Christ in all His glory manifested Himself to him. That's how powerful the Scriptures are. But that shouldn't surprise us because that is where God makes His glory known. That is where God reveals Himself in the Scriptures. 
And this is why the Reformers were so committed to the Word of God. Because they believed that God was present when His Word was present. And that when the Word of God was spoken, God spoke. And God makes Himself known to His people through the Scriptures. That's why they would go through it verse by verse, book by book. Because this is where God reveals Himself. So they were committed to the Scriptures. And it's a reminder of how powerful the Scriptures are. One other takeaway. I want you to realize that your conversion was sought out by God. God had a plan for this Ethiopian eunuch. And He is bringing Philip to this Ethiopian eunuch. And He did the same thing to you. He did the same thing to me. Isn't that interesting? Usually we think that we became Christians because we were pursuing God. We wanted to know more about God, so we were pursuing God. And we were, and we were asking questions. We might say, well, I had a great desire. I had a great curiosity. But we should even pause there for a moment and say, well, why did you have a great desire? Why did you have a great curiosity about Christianity and the things of God? Because I know many people, and I'm sure you do, as well, who have no desire, have really no curiosity about the things of God. I mean, they're very curious about who's going to win the Bears game this afternoon. But how curious are they about who Jesus Christ really is? Not very curious. So we should even ask that question. So this Ethiopian, he's making a long trek to Jerusalem to worship God. Obviously, he has a great interest in the things of God. That's true. But is that the whole of the story? It's not. I'd like you to turn to Luke 19, if you will. And I I see a parallel with another man. And we'll just look at him briefly. Luke 19 talks about a wee little man. That's how you say it if you're Scottish. Luke 19, Zacchaeus. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Talking about Jesus, he was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He's really interested in this Jesus. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. So if we were to stop right there, we would think, wow, there's a seeker, right? Here's Zacchaeus seeking after Jesus. He wants to see who Jesus is. And that is part of it, but I don't think that's all of it. Read on. And when Jesus came to that place, He looked up and said to him, now notice who who initiates this interaction. Is it Zacchaeus or Jesus? Jesus. Zacchaeus. And by the way, I love the fact that Jesus calls him by name. How did Jesus know his name? Did he hear about him? Was it supernaturally revealed to him by the Holy Spirit? I don't don't know. But it's personal. And when God calls you to himself, he calls you by name. I really mean that. He did. He he called you by name. He called you your name. Zacchaeus. Hurry. That's interesting. Hurry. He gives him a command and come down. 
And I don't think in the history of mankind a man came down from the tree faster than this guy right here. <laughs> Hurry and come down for I must stay at your house. That's interesting. I must stay at your house. And then he says, today. Now, this is fascinating. Hurry. I must stay at your house. Not sometime in the next week when you can fit me in church. Today. What, what's going on here? Jesus is on a mission and He's carrying out the fulfillment of God's plan. Because God said to Jesus, Zacchaeus is my man. I've set my affection upon him. You go get him. Don't wait for him to come to you. You go get him. And I really don't believe that's an exaggeration. Continue on with the story. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood up. Now, here's where you have to read between the lines. Between verse 7 and 8, if this were a play, the curtain has closed. When the curtain opens up again, Jesus is in the home of Zacchaeus. He has preached the gospel to him. Zacchaeus has been converted. How do I know that? By what we read in the story. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and he probably had, I restore it fourfold. Based on Zacchaeus' response, we know that his life has been transformed. Whenever anyone gives away their money, something's going on. But what does Jesus say? He makes it very clear. And Jesus said to him, Today, see this today again? Today, salvation has come to this house. Specifically talking about Zacchaeus, since he also is the son of Abraham. And then verse 10, which is not only the key verse of this passage, but many believe, and I think they are correct, this is the key verse to the epistle, or excuse me, the Gospel of Luke. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So, according to divine commentary from verse 10, who's the seeker in this passage? Zacchaeus or Jesus? Jesus. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And here in chapter 8 of Acts, we have God seeking and saving the lost. And He's using Philip. He's getting him over where this Ethiopian eunuch is so he can preach the gospel to him so that he can be saved. God is orchestrating it from heaven. Sending out messengers from heaven if necessary and moving people on earth so they can get into place. And that's what God did to you. He really did. God put people in place. Even if they were on the radio. God put you in a place and you would turn that radio station on and you, and you would hear that message that you heard. Or God was orchestrating things so that you would be in church and you would hear the message. Or God was bringing you together with a good friend who would share the gospel with you. That wasn't an accident. That was not an accident. God orchestrated that. He put all the pieces together because He set His affection upon you. And there was a day when God said in heaven, Today is the salvation 
for this person. And God brought the pieces of the puzzle that maybe He's been putting together for years. And you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And at first you thought, boy, I was seeking Him. But when you look back, you see that, wait a second, God really was seeking me. God came to seek and to save me, this lost soul right here. This is what Charles Spurgeon said on one occasion. He said, I still believe the old things that I had heard continually from the pulpit and did not see the grace of God. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths in my soul, when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. He says, one weekday I was sitting in the house of God and the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? And we could each ask that question. Ask yourself, if you're a Christian. How did you come to be a Christian? Spurgeon said, I sought the Lord. Okay, you sought the Lord. Follow-up question. But how did I come to seek the Lord? He said, the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought Him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek Him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? See what he's doing? Just working himself back. How came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. Okay, so then he has another question. How came I to read the Scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that He was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me And from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. In other words, completely to God. And I think Spurgeon's logic is a biblical logic and I think an irrefutable logic. If we were all to ask these questions, how did I become a Christian? Well, this happened in my life. Well, how did that happen in your life? Because this happened in my life. Well, why did that happen in my life? Because this happened in my life. And why did that happen in my life? And keep going. And who's at the end of the road? I really believe God is at the end of the road. That's where it stops. It stops with God. God is the author of your salvation. And then the question is, why me? And why not this person? I don't know if I can give you a good answer. I can say for God's glory, I can give you the big answer. But why specific, specifically did God choose some of us to glorify Himself through in this way, not us? I don't know. Part of God's sovereign purposes. Which, as I said earlier, makes this doctrine of sovereignty scary, but exciting at the same time. Yes, it's scary. Because it raises big issues as well that are frightening but it's exciting and thrilling at the same time. We are Christians because God sought us out. So we should stand in awe of God's grace that would save sinners like us.